Galatians chapter 2 begins with a very strong accusation, if you will. I'm sorry, chapter 3, not chapter 2, Galatians chapter 3. He quickly identifies his audience, and he is not just calling them names. He is accurately describing their condition spiritually, And uh, we would take great issue if someone wrote to us in this fashion, but these kinds of letters and these kinds of statements definitely need to be made. And we are so worried about being politically correct that we seldom hear these being stated. When they are, people are, oh, how could you say that? And they are, uh, in the midst of that, uh, tiptoeing around very serious issues that should be blatantly obvious, and that's what we're dealing with, the blatantly obvious truths of God's Word that are being rejected and destroyed by the obviously erroneous teaching of the Judaizers. And so, how do you deal with the blatantly wrong, the obviously in error? Um, Well, you do it by being in their face. You do it by... uh, Calling a spade a spade, if you in the vernacular verbiage, but you do it directly. And Paul isn't going to pull any punches here, and he is not uh, really trying to get into a name calling session with the Galatian Christians. But he is drawing out the the serious condition that they are laying themselves open for, and hoping to get their attention to draw them to see the obvious. Um, and to respond to it the way um, the truth demands. And as we get into that, let's go, Lord, in prayer, and then we'll look into these uh, first nine verses of Galatians chapter 3. I don't think we'll get to through all nine, but we'll read through them here shortly. Let's pray first. Lord, we do thank you for your love for us, again, for your word, for the opportunity to look into it tonight. We pray for uh, a number of our people missing tonight. I know with some illness and things going on, and Lord, we pray you might uh, just encourage them. And Lord, that uh, for us here, that our time in your word might be profitable, that it might uh, produce the righteousness of God as you desire, and that we might be warned and heed that warning uh, to avoid that which uh, so clearly uh, violates what we claim of being children of God through the power and the working of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. And it's in his name we pray. So we come to chapter 3, verse 1, and we are immediately confronted with old foolish Galatians with the with emphatic statement that's going to be repeated again. This isn't the, the first time, the, the last, first and last, it's going to be repeated and repeated. He's going to uh, bring it out um, in uh, verse 3. Are you so foolish? Um, is this really... Uh, not understood by you? And the question isn't just to intellectual agreement and intellectual understanding of truth. It's the idea of being drawn after something that should have been easily exposed. And some of that is because to Paul, that should have been easily exposed. In his mind, he taught better. They have learned better. They know the scriptures better. And from his perspective, they have all the information they need. This is not a lack of information understanding. Um, but rather a matter of foolishness. What they have done is they have left off the truth that they have been taught, 
and they have taken up with someone else because it sounded good. And they didn't really examine it. They didn't really delve into it and really consider its outcome and what it speaks to. And this is very common in our day. We have a lot of this kind of foolishness going around, even with people who sound very knowledgeable and uh, very logical. But the fact is, once you break down their arguments, uh, they are ridiculous. Uh, and you break them down and you start to demonstrate it. And But we find instead of being receptive, they are agitated by it. How can you talk to me that way? How can you refer to me? You, you can't say that I'm... that. And they just break it out. And they say they, they won't listen to the argumentation that demonstrates the foolishness of their position um, because they have committed themselves to it, not because of its logic, not because of its, of its connection to the truth, but because of their personal attachment to it. They like it. And let's just be honest that there are some things that we believe that we like and that in our heart of hearts and in our mind of minds, we know aren't consistent with our Christianity, aren't consistent with God's truth. And that's what Paul's confronting here, is that it should be evident, um, and to lead you into that evidence, uh, to, to, to lead you into that basic understanding, I'm going to give you a series of questions, but I want you to first of all understand that you aren't thinking about this in terms of the truth that you've been taught and what God's Word declares. You haven't taken that into consideration. You haven't made that the priority. You haven't made that the test of what you have committed yourself to. What you've done is you have taken your preferences, your own interests. You have perhaps taken the charisma or the uh, uh, personality that has brought you this information. You have raised that up and said, well, that's of more value to me. And so I want to listen and agree with what I'm being taught from this person because they are agreeable. And we have those all over the place in our day. And they're charlatans. They're telling lies. They are misrepresenting God's word. Um, But they present themselves in such an agreeable fashion that you can't hardly help but smile at them and say, oh, it's great to know you, brother, and to follow you, and I love your teaching because while you're teaching, I smile, and it's fun, and I can follow you. You use small words, and it's, and it's simple, and, and it just makes sense to my simple understanding. And what we really mean is it makes sense to my understanding in the flesh. And the fact is the principles of God are going to seldom settle easy with the natural mind. That is, that when you encounter the truth of God, you're going to find conflict in your heart and in your mind. You're going to have to have conflict in understanding it, and you're going to have conflict in the fact that now it demands something of you, that you're going to have your predispositions, your previous beliefs, your philosophy of life, and now you have God's truth, and you're going to have to deal with the fact that they cannot coexist and both be genuinely held. That either one must be ignored and one kept, or the one must be abandoned so that the one can be adhered to. And that happens. And so 
we don't like that cognitive dissonance is what it's called that our thinking is challenged and our philosophy is 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 seeking to be corrected and so we want to follow something that's just easier to follow and it makes sense to our fleshly senses um, I think one community that fits into this category so snugly and so easily that um, uh, you, you just hardly can teach this without mentioning them. Uh, this is them all the way through, and that is the psychological community. Our psych community has done some incredible things, none of them science, uh, but they have done some incredible things of observing human behavior. They are very good at identifying what human behavior is. That is, they will sit there and they, through their observations and through their records and through the, the multiple uh, efforts of, of talking and interacting, communicating with people, they pick up major trends that are going on around us. And so people, certain people behave this way, certain people behave that way. And they're able to identify those. And because we connect to those so easily, oh, that sounds just like so-and-so. They start giving us a list of attributes. They start giving us a list of behaviors, of um, characteristics, of qualities. And we look at that list and we say, oh, yes, that's just like my second-born or my first-born. And if they're talking about first-born qualities and we make that connection um, and they are very, very good at presenting this wonderful list of human qualities as they are uh, put together in little packages. And because they are so good at their observations, we then conclude that they know what they're talking about in terms of their conclusions of both where those observations come from, what causes them, causation, as well as resolution. And so they've taken the middle of observation, and because their observations are so keen, and because we look at that and we can identify that, oh, yeah, that's me. Oh, yeah, that's her. Yeah, that's my kid. Um, yes, that is my coworker to the T. You've just described my husband, you know, or whatever. And, and we hear their observations, and we make that connection sometimes to ourselves, um, but we make that connection. Then we conclude that because their observations are so insightful, which aren't insightful at all, they're just observational, they have cataloged them. And cataloging is, is, is just observation. It's just writing down what you see. But we think that, oh, these people have great insight. And so therefore, when they start going beyond observations and go into causation, where did these behaviors come from? What is the reason they exist? And they go into the other side of how do we resolve problems in these behaviors or irregularities or how do we relate to people with those? Um, we take their word for it. And what we find is that they're teaching in both causation and in resolution of those psychological issues and personality issues uh, have both wandered greatly from the truth. They are both theoretical and error-filled because they are unprovable. I can sit there and say observationally that um, the sun rises over there and sets over there. Correct? 
That's an observation. Now, let's examine how does that happen. Well, it must happen because the sun is moving in the sky. Correct? And that is what the world believed for many, many, many years in a, in a, a geocentric universe that the sun is rotating around the earth. Um, and now, by science and stuff, we have learned that instead it's the earth that's moving. And it's very interesting that the Bible describes the reason the sun moves in the sky is because the earth is moving. And so it does describe that in a couple of places, that when the sun stops in the sky, that there is an effect upon the earth. Um, and so we, we come to it and we say, well, actually the universe is all moving and we know that we have a rotational force on our planet and that that is an attribution. And uh, what a difference, right? Both people, both theories have the same observation. Correct? They both say the sun rises over there and it sets over there and, um, and it's very patterned and we can tell the passage of time by the traveling of the sun across our horizon. But they have two very different explanations that are really incompatible with each other. And so we come to a series of questions to engage our thought that when we encounter things, often it is couched in the... Our our fleshly wisdom is often couched in observations. And when we enter into the theoretical realm of causation or into the realm of of resolution of problems that arise arise out of our observation, um, we need to recognize now we're entering into theory that needs to be tested. And so Paul's going to put this to the test. This is what you do. This is foolish people get caught into uh, thinking that observations equal wisdom. And they don't. People can give you observations all over the place. That doesn't mean that they have the wisdom of how to resolve these, nor of their causation. Where did they come from? What brought this about? Is it the order in which I was born? It is, is it the, the home I was, the economic group I was born in? Is it the ethnic group I was born in? Is it the hemisphere that I was born in? Is it my, my masculinity or my femininity that I was born in? What is the causation? And because a psychologist comes to these observations from a mentality that men are basically good, therefore it must be the environment that is the causation of your personality. And any deviation of that is the fault of your parents, your employers, your government, or the type of government you have, or your religion. Um, That's the cause, and that's what we need to correct in your life. Um, But because we come to it from biblical truth that says all men are sinners, we recognize that deviant behavior and and these attributes of man don't come from a blank slate, but from a heart that is already uh, attuned to sin and bent that way and is desiring after that opportunity to enter into rebellion against God and therefore rebellion against God any authorities in your life. And so we find uh, two completely opposite and incompatible views that explain and deal with the observations that all of us can account for. Well, Paul here is 
doing something similar. We're going to be addressing the issue and and the, the, the observation, that is the experience, is the deliverance from sin. And he's going to go through this and he says, okay, we're going to talk about the deliverance from sin. And we're going to do it uh, in reference to your Christian walk and there's going to be several compartments of the Christian experience we're going to talk about. So the Christian experience involves several things. Interesting, there is no record in here that one of the questions he is, say is about his sinner's prayer. But he asks um, a series of questions specifically about receiving the Holy Spirit. And his focus is on that, of receiving righteousness. And his focus is on that, of justification and the reception of the blessing of God. And so here's our Christian experience. Where did they come from? Where, why do we receive the Spirit? Why did you receive, how did you receive the righteousness of God? How did you receive the blessing of God? How does it come to us? Because Paul and the Judaizers both claim that they know how righteousness and the Spirit and the blessings of God are attributed to men. So if we claim to be in this condition of being under this wonderful condition, we have received the Holy Spirit. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's wonderful. I've got the Holy Spirit. I have received the righteousness of God. It's been imputed to me. I have the blessings of God in my life. And so Paul's question to him is, where did it come from? Where did those things come from? The Judaizers claim is that those come from your religious activity. They come from you fulfilling the law. They come from you uh, doing things in your flesh. They come from you all from the activity that you can do with your hands and your feet, with your mouth and your uh, and your digestive system, they can do it with what you do with your eyes and ears, with uh, your voice, that you can somehow attain to these things through the use of those physical tools. So if you sing the right songs, if you offer the right sacrifices, if you read the right reading, if you do all these things, whammo, you receive the righteousness of God, you receive a spirit of God comes upon you, and you have the blessing of God. And Paul says, Really? Um, let's go back and talk about when you received the Spirit. Did you receive the Spirit when the Judaizers showed up with their message, or did you receive the Spirit when you received the gospel about Christ in its pure form? That is, without any law being added to it. And so this is his question. Where does it come from? And so he asks this series of questions. Verse 2, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Obviously the answer is, well, we received the Spirit when we heard your message and received it by faith. We trusted in that message. And so their experience with the Spirit preceded the arrival of the Judaizers. And this is incredibly important to our salvation experience and understanding. And this, uh, we need to take a little time for. Um, and we did it in our study in the book of Acts on Sunday morning when uh, uh, Peter goes to Cornelius and they receive the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues. And immediately it brought out a truth. And the truth is, Peter now understands that the gospel 
is not tied to the law. It's not tied to being a good Jew. It's not tied to keeping any part of Judaism. Because here's Cornelius, who was not described as a proselyte to Judaism, not at all. He was a Gentile. He was a good man and uh, gave all and things like that. But he cared for the poor. He wanted to do right. He was seeking the truth. But here Peter comes. He's preaching to him. You don't find any circumcision. You find no keeping of the dietary laws, no keeping the sacrificial laws, and wham, there comes the Holy Spirit with equal power as what came on all the Jews in the temple area and in the vicinity around Jerusalem a few weeks earlier, months earlier. What's the conclusion? God must want Gentiles in. But there's a secondary conclusion that must be reached, that you can receive the Spirit of God without the law don't need all that. We need to, by faith, trust in Christ. Trust in the work of Christ, Calvary's cross. And so his question has an answer that, and he asks, are you so foolish that you started out with the Spirit of God? Um, Do you think somehow there's a better state that you're going to get to by keeping the law in the flesh? Can you make it perfect? Can you really take that which God does and improve it? Okay, so you have Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have his righteousness given to you. Can you improve on that? Any of you? Can you do better than Jesus in righteousness? No. Can you improve on your salvation by keeping the law in your flesh? No. What we are doing is we are serving God out of a thankful heart and wanting to serve him to the best of our ability and to walk in righteousness and truth because he has made us righteous, and we all recognize, I hope, that we never will in this world be able to walk completely holy as he is holy, but we strive after it always. We cannot attain to the righteousness that's been granted to us. So God gives us a level of righteousness we can't live up to. And so Paul says, do you think you're going to make your, the Spirit better? by your own works. Um, and he goes on and talks about the miracles that were worked among them. Uh, well, was it done by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Uh, and so Paul wants to recount for them all the time he was with them ministering. And remember, when we, when we talk about the Galatian churches, uh, you're talking about his first missionary journey. Remember when he was there and he saw the man and healed him in the middle of the crowd, in the middle of the sermon, and everybody wanted to offer sacrifices, said, Paul and Barnabas are gods that have come down to us. Remember that? Okay, so these guys have seen the miracle hand and power of God work through Paul. No mention of the law. The guy that was healed, just some Gentile out there. Experienced the power of God without circumcision, without keeping the Mosaic law in any way, shape, or form. The Spirit of God came upon them. They received it. Uh, Was it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And so we have this questioning. Um, The Judaizers come with their level of righteousness and their lifestyle, and your lifestyle as a Christian may look somewhat similar. They claim righteousness. You possess righteousness. Um, they, they have the scriptures, 
that you have. We share the same scriptures, correct? They even, at this point, were using the name of Jesus. They were accepting Jesus, but, as James says, they were zealous for the law. And God says, that's not how I want it. I'm shutting down Jerusalem. And within five, ten years, Jerusalem is gone. All those Jews that were accepting Jesus and zealous for the law, dispersed or dead. So that's not how God wanted it. And so Paul calls them to consider, if what these Judaizers said is true, then there's no way you should have received the Holy Spirit before they arrived. There is no way that miracles could have been done before they arrived. There is no way that the next one is righteousness could have been granted before they arrived. And of course, the chronology here is what he's pointing at. How foolish not to see the chronology. So let's go to Abraham. Well, what Jewish person doesn't want to go to Abraham? This has got to work for every Judaizer, right? Let's go to Abraham. By the way, um, Abraham works for every Muslim person you talk to. They believe in Abraham. Okay? Abraham is recognized, and every Arab person uh, is, feels that connection to Abraham. And so in Islam, um, you can get to Abraham, and they will agree with this declaration here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. They will agree with it. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And they are the children of Abraham. Remember, they too are children of Abraham, not just Jacob. There was also Esau, but Esau was also a child of Abraham. Okay, That's the Edomites. There was also Ishmael. So we're backing from Jacob up to Abraham. You're going to have Esau, so you have all that group. You have Ishmael and all of them. And so you have these family groups connected to Abraham. So, let's go back to Abraham. What's nice about Abraham is there's no law of Moses. (laughs) If the Judaizers are right, then there's no way Abraham could have been made righteous because he wasn't keeping any laws. Because no, the, the, the Judaic laws didn't exist. So how did Abraham become righteous? It wasn't by his works. It was simply by faith. It was credited to him, accounted to him for righteousness. What was? Well, he believed God. And this is foundational to the deliverance of all men from sin, from the Garden of Eden and the first sinners all the way to the end. It is all conditioned upon believing God And that is what God credits righteousness. All those, verse 7, who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So when our children on Wednesday night sing, Father Abraham had many sons, they're not talking about uh, Ishmael, Isaac, all those. He's talking about this verse. All those who are of faith, who are dependent not upon their works of their flesh, but are dependent upon believing God, at his word, they are all the sons of Abraham. And this is something that, um, boy, the Judaizers would have a really hard time swallowing this, wouldn't it? I mean, they're con- we're the Jews and you're the 
dog Gentiles. We're the chosen ones. You're going to have to, you know, submit to our ways if you're going to want our God to make you righteous, to give you his spirit, to give you his blessings. So Paul goes back to Abraham. And he says, being like Abraham isn't about physical lineage. The spiritual lineage there is one of faith. Anyone who, like Abraham, believes God is credited with righteousness. And we become a family of faith. We believe God at his word and trust in him for that righteousness. The righteousness that is apart from the law is far above the law. And frankly, um, is a righteousness you can't attain to the law because all that happens to the law is you just show you're a sinner. So the question is, where does your righteousness come from? And let's go back to Abraham. We have the declaration. Where does his righteousness come from? It didn't come from circumcision. That actually came a little later. He did have circumcision, but it wasn't yet. And so at this declaration, so we have the declaration, you believe God. And God says, that counts. That makes you righteous because I will impart to you the righteousness of Christ. Yes, Christ hadn't come yet, but it was anticipated. And so that's why we have a place in Sheol called Abraham's bosom. That's its name, Abraham's bosom, where men were kept until Christ. And then their sins were dealt with because they believed God. They were put in that half called paradise or Abraham's bosom, that half of, of Hades um, of, of keeping. Because they believed God, God placed them there. Um, and the righteousness of Christ then was accounted to them once it was accomplished on Calvary's cross. And that's where the Bible says he took captivity captive. He took those that were kind of, sort of trapped there, waiting for their redemption, and he freed them. But those that were on the other side of the great divide that no man could cross were to be kept in hideous pain and torture till their final judgment, which would just extend it. So this statement is a wondrous one. And Paul goes to Abraham a lot. In the book of Romans, he goes there um, because it's all pre-Moses. It's all before the law. How did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And for Abraham, it was before circumcision. So there wasn't any laws. It was simply, Abraham, do what I tell you to do. Okay, leave your land. Go to a land, I'll show you. I'm not telling you where it is. Just go. Okay. Abraham, go over there. Okay. Offer your, I'm going to give you a son. Okay. By the way, Abraham believed God, his wife didn't. One of the saddest things in history are the things that women make their men do. Um, and because Sarah didn't believe God, she laughed at God. She didn't believe him. She convinced Abraham to lie with Hagar and take her, and that's why we have Ishmael, and that's why we have that entire people group. Because that which is not of faith is sin. 
And so his wife didn't believe God at that time and about God's promise, but Abram did. And Abram then, having Ishmael there, says, Lord, can't you just accept Ishmael? Bless him, work through him. And God says, no, 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 that's the son of a slave. I said it would be the son of Sarah. Trust me. And it's the same man who trusted God when God says, go up on that mountain and offer your son, your only son, as a sacrifice there on that mountain. And Abram believed God and was going to do it and, and accomplish that and trust that God would either resurrect him or preserve him somehow because the promises of God are sure. And so um, while the command of God seems to be in contradiction to the promise of God, we keep the commands and let God work out the promise. And this is what faith looks like. I'm going to keep the commands of God, even though in my fleshly mind it doesn't make sense, it doesn't feel right in terms of God's promises. And I find a lot of false teaching coming into the church focusing on the promises of God without talking about the commandments of God. They want all the promises without all the ifs, right? They don't want the conditions of the promise. And so we find that many times the commandments of God almost seem to be in complete contradiction to the promises of God, and yet they must be obeyed. And so Abram obeys it, and and he finds out the other side of the obedience that this was a test of what? His keeping the law? No, it was a test of his faith. That obedience to the commandment is a test of, do you really believe? Because it is not keeping the commandment that brought belief. It was belief that causes you to keep the commandment. Do you believe me enough to do something that seems contradictory to my promises? Because you can't make you can't make all the all the dots connect. You can't make all the all the T's cross, and you can't figure out the logic of it all. And the question is, do you obey or do you ignore the obedience because you're claiming these promises? Well, the fact is that Abraham, I think, is a great picture of what real faith is. It's about a, real faith motivates us and moves us not to claim promises. Real faith moves us to obey commands. Big difference. Please understand that difference. To claim the promises of God is not, I believe, the best demonstration of faith. It's not exercising faith to sit there and quote the promises of God and claim them all the time. It is rather the greatest evidence that you have faith in God is that you will obey his commands. And in John it says that his commands are not grievous to us. It's not a hardship to us to obey him. And that's proof of faith. And so Abraham believed God. He obeyed God because he believed God. He did not believe God because he obeyed him. He obeyed because he believed him. Faith comes first. And the faith is then proven in obeying the commands. But the Judaizers had it the other way around. Obey the commands and then you will get all these other wonderful things. And that's not true. Don't claim the promises and then live like the devil. You can't can't do that. Don't claim the promises of God and then ignore all the conditions, all the commands. True faith um, says, I have to obey these commands, and sometimes I don't even understand how they relate to the promises of God, 
But I don't have to, because I believe the one who gave the command as well as the one who gave the promise. I believe him. And so what moves me to action is to obey the command, not to claim the promise. The promise is God's part. And I, I struggle with Christians that are always going on claiming the promises. Oh, you've got to claim the promises of God. What does that mean? That was a big deal um, in my younger years in the pastorate. I was, it was after college. I didn't really pick up on that a lot in college. But in my early years in the pastorate, um, that was, I heard that all the time. Oh, you've got to claim the promises. You've got to claim the promises. You've got to claim the promises. That's not the proof of faith. The proof of faith is obeying the commands. And the test of that for Abraham was, here you have a promise of God that through Isaac all the nations will be blessed. There's going to be all these multiplied peoples. Um, and yet we have a command of God saying, I have to go up and sacrifice him on a mountain. Real faith obeys commands. Doesn't claim promises. Leaves the promises in the hands of the one who promised it and concerns itself with obeying the commands of that one. We don't have to understand that facet. We have to recognize the authority of God and obey it. And so our obedience doesn't drive us to faith and doesn't get us the Holy Spirit and it doesn't get us righteousness and doesn't get us blessing, but rather, um, having received all those things, we are then driven to obedience. Those things drive obedience. Having the Holy Spirit because I believe. Having the righteousness of God, Christ imputed to me because I believed. Having the blessing of God attributed to me because I believed. Now I obey. And we can't turn that upside down. And we have too many people doing that. That's what the Judaizers are doing that. Perform these actions and then you'll get the promises of God. No, you receive the promises of God and as carriers of the promises of God, the Holy Spirit, righteousness, blessing, now you go out and obey. And that is the evidence of your faith. And there's a reason when you get to Hebrews 11 in your Sunday school class that you're going to say, what is faith? And they're going to define it. Faith is the proof. It's the evidence. Well, and they start listing examples and those examples are pretty impressive. But I want you to notice that all those examples are activities. They obeyed, they obeyed, they obeyed, they obeyed, they obeyed, and they obeyed again. Even to death, they obeyed. That doesn't make any sense. God wants me to go over and share Christ with those people, and those people kill me. That happened to many, many, many believers, many missionaries. That has been their experience. Were they wrong? No, they obeyed God. And we look at that and say, oh, how could the promises of God keep them, didn't keep them safe? Why didn't it do it? Um, because you have a fleshly, earthly understanding of the promises of God, and you think that claiming them is the priority, when the priority for God is that you obey as proof that you believe and trust him, that he will work out the promises to our benefit. Obedience is what we are called to. And so we come to a passage like this, and we are confronted with this one. And uh, then he uses Abraham as yet another example of the fact of justifying the Gentiles by faith, verse 8. 
He preached the gospel to Abraham. I love that phrase. In Paul's mind, this is God preaching the gospel to Abraham. We have a very narrow view of what the gospel is and entails. Um, we think, well, it must include, you know, these thing, these bullet points. Um, but here's what Paul says, that God preached the gospel to Abraham before and saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham because we are the sons of Abraham. And so here's the good news. Here's the gospel. Here's the message. God comes to Abraham and says, you believe me, you obey me, um, and the blessings are yours. But the blessings aren't what you're going to focus in on. And uh, you're not going to find that rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed by Abraham. You don't find that in the faith chapter. Um, If you go to Hebrews 11, let's just go there real quick. You're not going to find it. Oh, they claim the promises. Um, You're not going to find them claiming promises. You're going to find them offering a sacrifice in verse 4. You're going to have them, verse 5, not seeing death. You're going to find them... um, in uh, uh, Noah building an ark and all the ridicule there and, and, and uh, preaching. You're going to find Abraham obeyed in verse 8 to leave the place. We already talked about that. And um, we're going to jump down to uh, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. What? So how do we know that they died in faith? when they didn't receive the promises. It says right there, right? These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. So they didn't experience the promises of God. They didn't claim them. They said, God will work out the promises sometime. Maybe not even in my lifetime. The promises are God's to keep. What is for me to keep to show my faith? His commands. He tells me to build a boat. So I build a boat. For a hundred years, I build a boat and preach to everybody, saying, repent, God's going to destroy everybody. A really big boat. They're building one in Kentucky right now. Answers in Genesis, building a life-size model according to the, the instructions and the measurements given in the book of Genesis. So they're hoping to open this in the fall or in the late summer of 2016. So they've hired a whole group of Amish woodworkers to build this thing. Guess how much the ark costs to build today? $27 million to build the ark today. Of course, they're doing it in a year and a half instead of a hundred years. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to obey. I'm going to build the ark because you said told me to. I'm going to go preach to these people that are going to kill me I, because you told me to. And they're going to go right through here and he's going to go boom, boom, boom all the way through chapter 11. And he's going to say, let, let's jump down to, oh, I don't know. He talks about Moses as well. Verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down. Think about that. What did God say? The promise was, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. So, what's the command? The command was, you're going to 
not attack Jericho. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to cross the Jordan River on dry ground. You're going to get to the other side, and you're going to incapacitate all your men for a week by circumcising them, because they didn't do circumcision while they were in the wilderness wanderings, apparently. So I had a whole generation that didn't experience circumcision while they were wandering the wilderness for 40 years. So they, cro- they don't do that while they're on the safe side of the Jordan. They cross the Jordan River. <laughs> they get to Gilgal, and they stop, and God says, recircumcise everyone right now. Make sure everyone's got it covered. We're going to do circumcision in the land. And so there they are, and men are completely incapacitated for three to five days, well, really a week, um, after that surgery. If you don't believe me, look at what Jacob's boys did to a whole town of men who circumcised themselves to marry his, their daughter, or their, their sister. So here, we're going to obey God. So he tells us to go over there, he tells us to get circumcised. Okay, we're going to circumcise here, but Jericho's right there. They could come out and kill us at any minute. Then where would your promises be, Lord? But we don't worry about the promises. That's God's side. What is our concern? Obey the commands. That's our proof of faith. Not keeping the law to get righteous, but because we have righteousness, we keep the commands. Oh, I'm way past time. So, obey, obey, obey. All the way through this, obey. Walk around the city. Blow your horn on the seventh day. After walking around for seven days, all the ridicule involved in that, all the ridiculousness of that, and then walls fall down. And then he tells us to destroy everything. What does God require? Obey. So Paul here is not espousing license. You just go out and live however you want. But he's not, what he's saying is, you don't start the process of God by staking claim to the promises because you have lived a certainly good life. I'm keeping the promises, so you have to bless me. That's exactly what Israel was saying to God before they went into captivity. We're your people. You can't, you can't stop blessing us because of your promises. You can't destroy the temple because of what you said. That's what Jeremiah and Isaiah and all those guys were dealing with, a generation that claimed the promises but never obeyed the commands. So they thought because they were doing the sacrifices and keeping some of the law, that, and because they were the people of God, therefore God had to bless them and they claimed the promises. Paul says, that's the Judaizers. But that's not how it came to you. You, by faith, accepted Christ as your Savior. That's a step of obedience. And you received the Spirit of God, you received righteousness, and you received the blessing of God. And now you show your faith not by sinning, you show your faith by obeying. But not obeying to earn it, but obeying because you possess it. What a difference. And so a fool can't see that chronology. And Paul says, are you so foolish? Are you so beguiled by these personalities that tell you this stuff that sound, makes, seems to make sense um, because it goes aligned with your ideas to, attribute, to account for observations that you would ignore the facts, the truth? And so we go back to verse 1 and close. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Paul's not inviting them to disobedience. He is inviting them back to true obedience. Obey the truth. 
In chapter 3, verse 1, obey the truth. Don't let these people keep you from obeying the truth. The truth is, is that we are to walk in the Spirit. And we're going to get a better understanding of that as we go through Galatians and the liberty that we have to do so. And, but it's certainly not by our own efforts, by our own uh, religious activity that somehow we can put God in a corner and make him bless us. But rather the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. It was the work of Christ and not our work. It was his righteousness, not my own. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word before us and its power and truth. And we pray again that you might help us to bring it into our lives and guard us from being foolish and not being careful with everything we hear to compare to the truth of God's word and to really put it through the rigors of good thinking before we attach ourselves to any teaching of men whether secular men or religious men, Lord, help us be wise. And Lord, also, our prayer is that you might find us to be obedient as an expression of our faith. And Lord, we trust you that you will keep every promise you've made and that it is for us not to call you to that, but rather to obey you. And we pray you might as you have promised by your Spirit, to empower us to do so, that we might do so to your glory, honor, and praise, and never our own. In Christ Jesus' name.